Welcome to episode 29 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This will be the fifth and nearly the last episode devoted to France. And it's not simply because I spent a lot of my life in France that I'm spending so much time on it. It's mostly because Little-known fact, after Israel and the U.S., France is by far the largest Jewish community in the world, and it's also one of the oldest. So I think it merits a lot of our time, and I'm not going to spend time discussing events that I hope you already know about, like the French Revolution. What I am going to do today is move us from where we left off in the 16th century at the time of the Protestant Reformation, as it's called by some, or the Protestant Revolution, as it's termed by others. And I'm going to try to take us up from that point in time to the eve of World War I, and through the appearance and flourishing of a new type of anti-Semitism in France. So when the Protestant Reformation began early in the 16th century, the church with good reason, felt very threatened. It felt that its very existence was at stake, and this was an evil that had to be stamped out urgently. Europe descended into a series of religious wars of various durations at various times and of varying degrees of intensity that lasted for almost 200 years. And the wars were essentially about drawing the frontiers between Catholicism and Protestantism. And most states, which were not quite nation states yet at this point in time, but most states had a clear identity. France, for example, was known as the most faithful daughter of the church. And if you think of countries like France, Spain, Italy, Portugal, their Catholic identity leaps to mind immediately. Whereas if you think of countries like the Netherlands, Sweden, England, Even Germany, what leaps to mind, although all these countries have Catholic populations, what leaps to mind is a fundamental Protestant identity. So, for France itself, these religious wars culminated in something called the War of the Three Henrys that only lasted from 1585 to 1589, and it was really one of many wars of religion. But this particular war was named for Henry III, who was the actual king of France and the last of the grandsons of Francis I, Henry the Duke of Guise, who was head of something called the Catholic League, and Henry of Navarre, which is part of Spain today, the Protestant cousin and the heir apparent of a childless king. The mere threat that a Protestant, namely Henry of Navarre, could succeed to the French throne pushed the Catholic League to an extreme of proposing a deliberate violation of the rules of succession by making an uncle of Henry of Navarre, the Catholic Cardinal of Bourbon, king. But in an established monarchy, the rules of succession are, in fact, what we call constitutional laws and have behind them the full force of public opinion, so that most French public opinion, already disturbed by the extremes of both Catholics and Protestants, now turned against the Catholic League. Paris itself was a strong Catholic city, and a popular insurrection there called the Day of the Barricades on May 12, 1588, frightened Henry III out of the city, 
which triumphantly acclaimed Guise as the next king. Henry III took the weak man's way out and connived and almost certainly planned the assassination of the two great men of the Catholic League, Henry of Guise and his brother Louis. Infuriated, the League rose in full revolt, and King Henry was forced to take refuge in the camp of his Protestant cousin, Henry of Navarre, where King Henry III of France was in turn assassinated by a monk. So by law, Henry of Navarre was now King Henry IV, Henri IV, the first of the House of Bourbon, which is still within the line of the Capetian kings, but it's sort of a branch of the line and obviously related to the Bourbons of Spain as well. The Catholics set up the aged Cardinal of Bourbon as King Charles X, but in a decisive battle in March of 1590, Henry IV won a great victory, laid siege to Paris. Long negotiations now followed, and Henry was persuaded that if he would give up his Protestant faith, he could rally the moderate Catholics and secure at least tolerated status for the Protestants in France. So, Henry IV became Catholic in 1593, Paris surrendered, and thus was born the probably apocryphal tale that Henri IV had remarked, Paris is well worth a mass. He issued something called the Edict of Nantes in 1598, by which the French religious wars were ended, but full religious freedom was not really achieved. Partial freedom was. The Huguenots, which was the collective term for the French Protestants, were allowed to practice their religion in certain areas, and their great nobles were permitted their religion in their own households. But particularly at Paris, in the surrounding areas of Paris, and in all the cities of bishops and archbishops, the Huguenots were forbidden public worship. Now, two comments about this time period. One is that the Edict of Nantes was revoked by a future French king less than a 100 years after it was first issued. So even the appearance of religious tolerance ended under King Louis XIV in 1685. In any case, going back to a comment I made in one of the earlier episodes on France, although France is a motor of change in some ways and birthplace of many revolutions, It's also extremely conservative. So I want to tell you a story of how even towards the end of the 20th century, this has got to be in the late 1980s, when I was living and working in France, how did the Edict of Nantes and its revocation actually play out? Well, in two ways. First of all, one of my friends who was a Protestant got married in a Protestant church, and he knew that many of his Catholic friends, if not most, would not enter a Protestant church, which they wouldn't even call a church. They called it a temple, and they saw it as a habitation of the devil. So there was a much larger crowd expected at the party for the wedding than at the wedding itself, because the wedding was held in a Protestant temple. On an even more personal note, I once took a French friend who was a public school teacher in Paris in a very diverse neighborhood full of Jews, Muslims, immigrants, all kinds of people. And both this guy and his wife were active members of an NGO that fought against racism. 
and they included in their wedding vows the Martin Luther King speech, I Have a Dream. So they were about as tolerant and liberal as you could get. But when my friend and I were driving around the country, we stayed with some good friends in Seattle and went to a brief prayer service on Friday night in a small room called the chapel adjacent to their synagogue. And my friend was turning all kinds of odd colors, green, white, whatever. Then he had trouble breathing. He was like gasping for air. So we took him outside and laid him on the grass. And he was okay after a while, but he refused to say what caused this panic attack until much later in the evening when he could talk with me one-on-one and in French so nobody could overhear. And he said, I'm so embarrassed. When I was a child in my village, the parish priest told us that Protestant temples, Jewish synagogues, and any non-Catholic house of worship was really the home of the devil. And I thought that I had gotten rid of that way of thinking or grown past it long ago. But on some visceral level, that teaching actually prevented me from breathing while in a Jewish chapel. In any case, returning to Henri IV, Henry IV, He turned out to be one of France's greatest kings and was in many ways the restorer or the savior of the French monarchy for future kings. So if Henry IV was famous for saying that Paris is well worth a mass, Louis XIV, who revoked the Edict of Nantes, is most famous for his saying, l'état c'est moi, the state, it's me. He was the exemplar par excellence of the divine right monarchy, which some saw as an absolute monarchy. And he felt compelled by the clergy to cancel or revoke the Edict of Nantes in 1685. After this move, over 50,000 Huguenot families, which let's say averaged six people each. So we're talking about 300,000 people, which is quite a lot at that time, left France and fled to Protestant countries, mostly Holland, Belgium, England, and also the new colonial lands of the British Empire in North America. All their skills and intellectual gifts greatly strengthened the lands that received them. And some remained in France where they continued to worship underground in spite of persecution. And it was an echo of the kind of persecution that Jews had undergone in Spain when they were forced to practice their religion in hiding. It's certainly an oversimplification, but nonetheless probably fair to say that Louis XIV and his successors, Louis XV and XVI, by their excesses created a great sense of dissatisfaction in the French public, which combined with all the ideas of the Enlightenment that evolved throughout the 1700s, led sort of inexorably to the French Revolution. Now, this Enlightenment was a lot of great, what we today would call political science, but back in the day it was called philosophy, and the people who espoused these new ideas were called les philosophes, the philosophers, but they were really political scientists. And they cross-fertilized each other's trains of thinking on both sides of the English Channel, in France and in England. In England, it didn't quite lead to an armed insurrection, but it did lead to an armed insurrection 
in one of England's most important colonies, which is today known as the United States of America. Our revolution and the French Revolution have very similar ideological roots. The decade that began in 1789 in France was chaotic to say the least. A lot of people were killed, different forms of government were experimented with, different constitutions were written. Eventually, Napoleon came to power, and at his peak, he was strong enough not only inside of France, but in all of Europe, to negotiate with the Tsar of Russia, Alexander I, something called the Treaty of Tilsit in 1807. This treaty should be better known than it is because, in effect, Napoleon of France and Alexander of Russia divided all of Europe between them. The only things that remained outside of this Napoleonic system were Sweden, England, and Turkey. But there was also a contingency in the event of the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire for which parts would go to France and which parts would go to Russia. So the eventual collapse of the Ottoman Empire was also foreseen in this treaty. Napoleon was famously defeated when he led his army all the way to Moscow, and fewer than 25% of those soldiers eventually returned to France. After that defeat, almost all the nations of Europe rallied behind Great Britain to try to defeat Napoleon, which they finally did at the so-called Battle of the Nations, fought at Leipzig in Germany in late 1813. By the spring of 1814, the forces of this very broad coalition occupied Paris. Napoleon abdicated and began an honorable exile as ruler of the minute island of Elba, not far from the western coast of Italy. The statesmen of the great victorious coalition gathered in the Congress of Vienna and they drew up terms of peace by which the Bourbon monarchy returned to France in the person of Louis XVIII, a younger brother of Louis XVI. Realizing that he could not revive the Ancien Régime as it had been, the new king issued the Charter of 1814, establishing a constitutional monarchy. Then, in 1815, Napoleon pulled his last surprise. He landed with an army on the Mediterranean coast of France. And for a 100 days, from March 20th of 1815, when Napoleon re-entered Paris, the French Empire was reborn. Once again, the emperor rallied the French people, this time by promising a truly liberal regime. He never had time, however, to show the sincerity of his promises, because on June 18th of that same year, 1815, the British under Wellington and the Prussians under Blücher delivered the final blow at Waterloo, near Brussels. Again, Napoleon went into exile, but this time to the remote British island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic, where he died in 1821 of natural causes. So the 19th century, not only for France, but for Europe in general, was a century full of revolutions, both major and minor, and of Congresses that tried to set up safeguards for the peace of Europe and measures that would prevent future wars. Of course, we know what the results of that were. But for our purposes, there are a couple of important things here. One, Napoleon liberated the Jews of France. He emancipated them by saying, 
No more ghettos, no more distinctive clothing. You're just like anybody else. You can do the same jobs. You can study in the same universities. You can live in the same neighborhoods as Catholics and Protestants. This was the first such widespread, quote-unquote, emancipation in Europe in what had been always a Catholic country. And it would spread to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, most importantly, where the fact of their emancipation meant that Jews could enter professions that had previously been forbidden to them, and they succeeded in the eyes of their non-Jewish neighbors outrageously. And there was a widespread suspicion that there must have been some cheating going on, because by late in the 19th century, in cities like Vienna, Budapest, Prague, Berlin, Warsaw, Jews numbered as much as 60% of the lawyers, 50% of the doctors, 40% of university professors. And these were people who had previously been completely hidden in ghettos. Nobody knew about them. Nobody saw them. Nobody had any contact with them. And suddenly, they appear to be running everything. And this generated a new type of anti-Semitism widely all over Europe in the last part of the 19th century. And particularly in France, where there was still a conflict between people who were loyal to the old way of doing things to the church and the army and the old right and people who really believed the ideals of the French Revolution, the famous phrase, liberté, égalité, fraternité, freedom, equality, and brotherhood, and the famous universal declaration of human rights. All these things came out of France, and there were many French people in the center and the left who believed in these things. There were other people who were much more reactionary and wanted to restore things the way they had always been. And this came to a head in the famous case of Dreyfus. Who was Dreyfus? Dreyfus was a captain in the French army and almost the accidental victim of an espionage intrigue and of the anti-Semitism then prevalent in France, particularly in military and Catholic circles. Dreyfus was convicted of treason in 1894, but it became clear when eventually somebody else admitted to the crime that Dreyfus was innocent. So he was brought back from exile. The case was reopened. The real criminal was tried and acquitted, but the affair was now much too public to end it in silence. In 1898, the famous novelist Zola brought matters to a crisis by publishing an open letter called J'accuse, I Accuse. And France was now bitterly divided into pro-Dreyfus and anti-Dreyfus people. The former defended in Dreyfus the Republic and the ideals of the Revolution. The latter attacked it. This case opened and closed and opened and closed. In the end, Dreyfus was pardoned by the President of the Republic in 1899. And in 1906, after the tensions had abated, he was acquitted and restored to the army with the rank of a major. Two unexpected consequences of the Dreyfus trial. One, in 1905, the triumphant Republicans destroyed the Concordat established in 1801 between Napoleon and the Pope, which had established the Roman Catholic Church in a privileged position in the French state, even though, according to the French Constitution, France is a lay state with no official religion. The church still had special rights, and particularly 
the right to put crucifixes and pictures of Jesus and or Mary in the front of classrooms that were run by public schools. The other unintended consequence of the Dreyfus affair was that a Viennese journalist who was actually a Hungarian Jew named Theodor Herzl was assigned by one of the major Viennese newspapers to cover this trial. And in so doing over many years, Herzl reached the conclusion that Jews could never be free of the scourge of anti-Semitism in Europe unless and until they had a state of their own. So he created and convened the first meeting of the World Zionist Congress in 1897. And ultimately, exactly 50 years later, the UN General Assembly voted to create the State of Israel. So in many ways, the Dreyfus Affair helped give birth to the creation of the modern Jewish state. Last, but maybe not least, is the fact that Dreyfus is the French pronunciation of Dreyfus, which means three feet. And this was a famous Jewish family name in and around the city of Strasbourg, a city which over the centuries went back and forth between France and Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. And as countries changed their names and their borders, the identity of Strasbourg changed with it. But the Dreyfus family was always closely connected with Strasbourg and its environment. And when I was working and living in France in the late 1980s, there was a French senator whose last name was Dreyfus, and he was part of the exact same family, and not coincidentally, also from Strasbourg. All right, we are up to the eve of World War I. The next episode on France will be the last, and I look forward to joining you again soon. <laughs>